welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Mansa Muso, African Titan. The date, February 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. When one designates themselves as the conservative historian and advertises that fact, it sets up one for, well, a lot of guff. Commentators often believe that the goal of this podcast is to try to bend history into the ideology of conservatism itself. But this is wrong. The concept is not to see the world entirely through a conservative lens, even though conservatism is rich with enough variations that the idea itself is problematic. I mean, which conservatism and which lens? But instead, the goal of the conservative historian is to conserve the concept of history as detective work in a quest for the truth. That is what we are trying to conserve in terms of history. It is the progressive form of history, however, now prevalent in both the university and most K-12 institutions, which permeates historiography today. This approach begins with a few salient ideas or views that consist of the following. This is the progressive view of history. Most importantly, the state needs to be present significantly in individual lives because people are primarily incapable of governing themselves. Again, the progressive view. Any concept that provides greater autonomy to individuals, such as, let's say, capitalism, must be suppressed due to the inherent flaws in any general population. They also believe that history is an arc, that application of ideals involving individual decisions is inherently wrong, especially when conducted beyond America's borders and within America itself. And finally, America, founded on the Lockean ideals of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, is a terrible country and needs to be transformed. The progressives do this by cherry-picking facts and figures to justify this worldview, and then they teach that as history. And that which contradicts this view needs to be suppressed. That is what the conservative historian is primarily fighting against. A view of history through a conservative perspective does not wish to substitute this methodology for another. For one example, in his hunt for communists, Joseph McCarthy might be seen as a conservative, but the historical record shows he did more harm than good. And unlike Ian Coulter, for one example, it is not the historian's job to resuscitate such a figure using the left's tactics i.e. the tactics of cherry-picking individual facts and then forming it into a predetermined ideology. Rather, the historian starts off with as many facts as possible at hand and then drives towards a conclusion. Of all the online kerfuffles that I have encountered on Twitter, though, none were as heated as when I made the contention that the pharaohs of Egypt were not of sub-Saharan African descent. This position was not based on Egyptian carvings, hieroglyphics, or even belief systems that belittle accomplishments from peoples from this region. Those were not the reasons that I made that determination. And it was not the position made to denigrate any type of African experience, as was the charge that I received over many social media platforms. To the left, Their position on racism is as the hammer is to the nail. When one imagines racism everywhere, and hears from numerous left-wing platforms, 
there must then, of course, be racism everywhere. Or to use the popular term now, systemic racism. To the hammer, everything looks like a nail. Thus the charge that any contention of the rulers of Egypt being anything besides sub-Saharan African must be racist. Again, the left cherry-picked certain facts and figures about Egyptian history and then pre-fit it into their narrative. Now, the conservative historian, on the other hand, looks for a broad-based fact, or in this case, facts that are in and of a part from that any belief system. Quote, the tombs of ancient Egypt have yielded golden collars and ivory blaze bracelets, but another treasure, human DNA, has proved elusive. But now, scientists have captured comprehensive comprehensive genomic information from Egyptian mummies. It reveals that mummies were, cro- were closely related to ancient Middle Easterners, hinting that Northern Africans might have different genetic roots from people south of the Saharan Desert. The study includes dating from 90 mummies, 90 of them, buried all the way between 1380 BCE during Egypt's New Kingdom and CE, 425 in the Roman era, over 2,000 years of data. The findings show that the mummy's closest kin were ancient farmers from a region that includes present-day Israel and Jordan. Modern Egyptians, by contrast, have inherited more of their DNA from Central Africans. Archaeological discoveries and historical documents suggest close ties between Egypt and the Middle East, but It is very nice that this study has now provided empirical evidence for this at the genetic level, says evolutionary anthropologist Omar Gakuman of the State University of New York at Buffalo, unquote. This was noted in a 2017 article in Nature magazine written by Tracy Watson and has not been fundamentally refuted in the subsequent four years since publication. Lest some readers think that Nature Magazine secretly trucks in theories that would make a former parlor user proud, note this from the Nature website, the usual diversity boilerplate. Quote, Nature Portfolio is committed to promoting practices that support diversity and inclusion in science communication publishing. We recognize that there are many dimensions to diversity, including gender, race, ethnicity, geography, and career stage. As a guiding principle, we aim to foster equity, diversity, and inclusion within our internal practices and in published content embody these values in our editorial activities and to support and promote these values in the research community, unquote. Nope, that does not sound something like from Tucker Carlson's website. Not at all. As noted, a school, if one could call it that, simply dismisses the, quote, science, quote, unquote, of DNA testing. This piece is from a website I generally like. It's called Moguldom, and it exists to give minorities a leg up in the capitalist system, and therefore is to the right of many leftist publications. But still, Moguldom website claims, quote, some of the most respected scholars in the world have said Egyptians were black Africans. Some modern scholars, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, have supported the theory that the ancient Egyptian society was mostly black. Face to Face Africa reported 
the Journal of African Civilizations, edited by Guyanese scholar Dr. Ivan Van Sertima, has always argued that, Egyptian, that Egypt was a black civilization. Scholars throughout the 20th century have used the term black, African, and Egyptian interchangeably, unquote. Note that despite the empirical science, and I always love it when the left says follow the science, and then they immediately dismiss any science that doesn't fit with their ideology, as is in the case here. And given that Du Bois, they're citing Du Bois, passed away more than 50 years ago, and he was a vocal supporter of Pan-Africanism and even registered citizenship with Ghana. His usefulness as a citation is highly questionable. Again, the conservative historian genuinely follows the facts, follows the science, and follows empirical evidence, as was the case here. What is puzzling is that if scholars wish to portray a vibrant and successful sub-Saharan African civilization, they need not go back 5,000 years. In fact, they can go back a bare 700 years to the Mali Empire and the towering figure of Mansa Musso. As reported by National Geographic magazine, quote, Mansa Musso or Musso I of Mali was the ruler of the Kingdom of Mali from 1312 CE to 1337 CE. During his reign, Mali was one of the richest kingdoms of Africa, and Mansa Musa was among the richest individuals in the world. The ancient kingdom of Mali, are you ready for this laundry list, spread across parts of modern-day Mali, Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, Mauritania, and Burkina Faso. Mansa Musa developed cities like Timbuktu and Gao into important cultural centers. He also brought architects all the way from the Middle East and across Africa to design new buildings for his cities. Mansa Musso turned the kingdom of Mali into the sophisticated center of learning, arguably the most at this time in the Islamic world. At different points of world history, certain civilizations hold sway. In the year 500 BCE, for example, the Persians might have been one of the more dominant places on the globe. The Mauryans in India around 200 BC, the Romans in the Han Chinese around year zero, the Guptas around the 600s, and the Carolingians in 800 CE, the Mongols in the Yuan and the Yuan dynasty in the 1200s. It is not just that the Mali kingdom was the wealthiest of the 1300s, it is is that it may have been the wealthiest of all time. Quote, when Mansa Musa went on a pilgrimage, the Hajj, to Mecca in 1324 CE, and his journey through Egypt caused quite a stir. The kingdom of Mali was relatively unknown outside of West Africa until this event, but Arab writers from the time said that he traveled with an entourage of tens of thousands of people and dozens of camels, each carrying 300 pounds of gold. While in Cairo, Mansa Musa met with the Sultan of Egypt, and his caravan spent and gave away so much gold that the overall value of gold decreased in Egypt for the next 12 years. He was a one-man deflationary uh, front. Stories of his fabulous wealth even reached Europe. The Catalan Atlas, created in 1370 CE by the Spanish cartographers, shows West Africa dominated by a depiction of Mansa Musso sitting on a throne, holding a nugget of gold in one hand and a golden staff in the other. After the publication of this atlas, Mansa Musso became cemented in the global imagination as a figure of stupendous wealth, unquote. 
Musa ruled from the city of Tumbuktu, still existing as a regional capital in modern-day Mali. He died in 1337 and was succeeded by his sons, but his skillful administration left his empire pretty well off at the time of his death. But eventually, as all empires do, it fell apart. After his death, Mansa Musa, though, remained ingrained in the world's imagination as a symbol of fabulous wealth. However, his riches are only one part of his legacy, and he is also remembered for his Islamic faith, promotion of scholarship, and patronage of a thriving culture in Mali. Now, for additional studies, Mali was not the only empire situated around the Niger River Valley. Just 500 years ago, a century or so of troubles that followed were ended by the accession, uh, figuring around 1464, of Sunni Ali, also known as Ali Bear, and he died in 1492. By repulsing a Mosse attack on Timbuktu, the second most important city of the Songhai, and by defeating the Dogon and Fulani in the hills of Bandiagara, he hit, had, by 1468, rid the empire of any immediate danger. He later evicted another ethnicity from Timbuktu, which they had occupied since 1433, and after a siege of seven years, took Jen in 1473, and by 1476, had dominated the lake region of the Middle Niger to the west of Timbuktu. He also repulsed a Mosi attack on Walata to the northwest in 1480 and subsequently discouraged raiding by all the Niger Valley's southern peripheral inhabitants. The civil policy of Sunni Ali was to conciliate the interests of his pagan pastoralist subjects with those of the Muslim city dwellers on whose wealth and scholarship the Songhai Empire depended. In the case of both Mansa Musa and Sunni Ali, these weren't just ruthless conquerors. Rather, they were also promoters of culture and scholarship. And even before the Mali, the Ghana Empire, which flourished between the 9th and 11th century CE, Ghana's kingdom was so prosperous that it was claimed the dogs were golden collars. That sounds a bit rich, but hey. And its horses adorned with silken rope halters slept on plush carpets. Now, it is no wonder that foreigners touted Ghana's kings as the world's richest men. Indeed, they were living the high life. But how'd they do it? Located within Mauritania, Mali, and Senegal's present-day borders, medieval Ghana literally sat on a gold mine. The land abundance of resources allowed Ghana's rulers to engage in years of prosperous trading. Strategic governing coupled with a great location led to the rapid emergence of a very wealthy empire. Now, most of what we know about ancient Ghana, which is more accurately called Ouagadougou, is based on writings of Arab travelers who came in contact with the nation's peoples. Ghana was the title given to Ouagadougou kings and was used by the Islamic reporters to describe the, the rich and mysterious place they observed. Now, let's leave the Niger Valley for a moment and look at some other sub-Saharan civilizations. Going way back in time, there were Nubian empires such as the Kush and Punt, and then later, an empire called Aksum rose. Quote, during the same period that the Roman Empire rose and fell, the influential kingdom of Aksum held sway over parts of what is now Eritrea and northern Ethiopia. Surprisingly, little is known about Aksum's origins, but by the 2nd and 3rd century CE, a trading juggernaut whose gold and ivory made it a vital link between ancient Europe and the Far East. 
unquote. And with those for a taste of the mysterious, there is clear evidence of a thriving empire based in modern-day Zimbabwe, but which lacks a historical record. Quote, One of the most impressive monuments in sub-Saharan Africa is the Great Zimbabwe, an imposing collection of stacked boulders, stone towers, and defensive walls assembled from cut granite blocks. The rock citadel has long been the subject of myths and legends. It was once thought to be the residence of the biblical Queen of Sheba, but historians now know it as the capital city of an indigenous empire that thrived in the region between the 13th and 15th centuries. Unquote. This kingdom ruled over a large chunk of modern-day Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Mozambique. It was particularly rich in cattle and precious metals and stood astray a trade route that connected the region's gold fields with ports on the Indian Ocean coast. Though little is known about its history, the remains of artifacts such as Chinese pottery, I love that, Chinese pottery, Arabian glass and European textiles indicate that it was once a well-connected mercantile center. The fortress city at the Great Zimbabwe was mysteriously abandoned sometime in the 15th century after the kingdom went into decline. But in its heyday, it was home to an estimated 20,000 people. In other words, at around the 13th century, there would have been more people in the Great Zimbabwe than there was in Paris or in London. The one commonality of these civilizations was that of the institution of slavery. On, a fa- on that famous pilgrimage to Mecca, Musso also reportedly brought 12,000 slaves. Whether this number was exaggerated or not, the reality is that all of these kingdoms and empires, just like the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, the Indians, and the Chinese, all had slavery as an institution. And this was not a concept in the far reaches of time. As of the Constitution signing in 1787, nearly every major civilization from one end of the globe either either had slavery or was involved within slavery as traitors or some form of enablement. The difference. The difference is that one particular nation was built on the concept of freedom and thus sowed the seeds for slavery's eventual destruction. The ubiquity of slavery is the part that many leftist historians wish to admit. And why would they do this? To ascribe a belief that we are a great nation removes a key plank of leftist thinking. It also diminishes their roles and profession as professional grievance providers. The worse the United States looks, the more it is necessary to, quote, transform the United States. And who does the transforming? Who benefits from the transformation? Is it the people that they, that they supposedly wish to help? Or is it the left in and of itself as the engineers of that transformation? Mansa Musso and many other rulers show that there was a time when blacks were in a very strong position of power, and these rulers used the power of the state to perpetuate values that we would today, thankfully, reject. Despite the evidence, it is probably a certainty that the debate over Egyptian ancestry, which has more to do with modern-day views than the scientific record, will go on and on. But for those who wish to read about African history that centers undisputably on sub-Saharan Africans, a gold mine of opportunity would have intrigued even a patron of scholarship such 
as Mansa Mozo. We hope you have enjoyed this latest Conservative Historian podcast. My name is Bell Avis. Thanks for listening.